Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Our parsha this week, as I mentioned before, is known as Parshat Beha'alotecha, uh, when you lift up or when you raise up, speaking about the mounting of the lights on the menorah before the children of Israel move uh, from Mount Sinai up into this point, uh, from about the middle of the book of Exodus, the people have been camped at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, and finally, uh, they are ready to start moving on. But uh, no, soon, no sooner do they start moving on, that then trouble starts brewing among the camp. Uh, there is complaints and, uh, and rebellions uh, abounding in this Torah portion. And so maybe the name Baha'alotecha is a little bit ironic uh, because it starts with lifting up, uh, but uh, so much of the Torah portion uh, is, uh, is, is really a downer in a way uh, about uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, baser and more banal uh, complaints and, uh, and, and tribulations that the children of Israel have in the wilderness. One of those scenes is really powerful, and it comes at the end of the portion, uh, at the beginning of chapter 12 of the book of Numbers. And I want to read it for us uh, in, in full, if I may. So it's, this is uh, chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Numbers. When they were in Chatzerot, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. He married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? The Lord heard it. Now Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. Suddenly, the Lord called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stopped at the entrance of the tent, and called out, Aaron and Miriam. The two of them came forward, and he said, Hear these my words. When a prophet of the Lord arises among you, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is trusted throughout my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth plainly and not in riddles. And he beholds the likeness of the Lord. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses? Still incensed with them, the Lord departed. As the cloud withdrew from the tent, There was Miriam stricken with snow-white scales. When Aaron turned toward Miriam, he saw that she was stricken with scales. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, account not to us the sin which we committed in our folly. Let her not be as one dead who emerges from his mother's womb with half his flesh eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, pray heal her. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father spat in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and then let her be readmitted. So Miriam was shut out of camp seven days, and the people did not march on until Miriam was readmitted. After that, the people set out from Chatzirot and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. There is a lot going on in this story and a lot of different ways of possibly interpreting it. There are a lot of problems in the story, not the least of which uh, is the fact that it seems like both Miriam and Aaron are uh, 
committing this transgression, whatever the transgression was, but yet Miriam is the only one who punished. And so one of the things we have to grapple with in this text is its uh, inherent misogyny. We're going to put that aside for a moment and, and just actually get to one of the most basic uh, and, uh, and plain uh, implications of the text. So Miriam and Aaron speak out against Moses, uh, and uh, one of the arguments they make against him, or one of the attacks that they level against him, um, is that he marries a Kushite woman uh, in, uh, in, in uh, ancient parlance. Uh, Kush was a, a name for Ethiopia. Uh, and so it's uh, quite possible and quite probable that what Miriam and Aaron were saying was uh, that was using the darkness of the, the skin of Moses's wife as an attack against him. Uh, in other words, in our modern language, um, this was a racist attack against Moses's wife. Um, and it's telling what Miriam's punishment is here. Her punishment is to be stricken with leprosy, as if to say, uh, you think that darkness is a problem? You think that whiteness is better? Here, you can be uh, as white as God can possibly make you. Uh, so there is a midah keneged midah in there, a, a, a punishment fits the crime uh, in, Miriam's, uh, in Miriam's punishment. And also the fact that she is excluded from the community as part of her punishment uh, from, from the infinite. Uh, which uh, I think is part of the same issue. What she is trying to do is otherize somebody who is already part of the community with her words, exclude somebody from the community. And so her consequence is to be excluded from the community. How does it feel, Miriam, to be othered, to be on the outside? This story, I think, has really profound resonance for us today as we grapple with the uh, sin of racism within our society and all of its uh, manifestations uh, and with all of its implications. And the story uh, says to us, if Miriam, a prophet of God, can be afflicted with the sin of racism, really any of us can as well. And it behooves us to reflect on this story to learn how we might be able to uh, uproot it uh, from our myths and eradicate it from within ourselves. Uh, and so I'm really grateful this morning to welcome a very special guest, uh, a beloved member of our congregation, Sharina Gibson, uh, who is uh, here to, uh, to join a conversation uh, about the Torah portion uh, and about the meaning of this moment. Uh, Sharina, are you there? I am. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? Shabbat Shalom. It's so nice to have you. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good, good. Uh, hopefully my internet will cooperate for, the, for our conversation. Uh, but, but first, I'm so grateful that you're here. And, and tell us, how are, how are you? How's your family? Yes, um, thank you for asking. We are very much struggling with this. Um, my family is myself, my husband Mitchell, and our six-year-old daughter Carter. And we are... It is definitely affecting us in that we are, we are watching what's happening on the news. For Mitch and myself, it has brought up memories, trauma from our childhoods, and things that have happened to us, you know, maybe even weeks ago. And it's even more difficult to explain to our six-year-old what is happening and what it means. And 
for her to recall, even though she's only six, the racial incidents that she has already experienced mm. uh, at her school, in our community, at our shul. And so it's a very difficult time. It is also very difficult to be a Jew of color at this time because it's almost like you have to, you feel the, the need to defend multiple sides uh, where you're often <laughs> on the office, on the defense of, on both sides. It's very difficult to explain to members of our, our Jewish community that Black Lives Matter in and of itself means exactly that, that our lives matter and that we feel that our lives matter. The very nuanced argument of a policy position from a, an organization that does align itself with the idea of Black Lives Matter and its stance on Israeli treatment of Palestinians does not and should not overshadow what Black Lives Matter means. It shouldn't co-opt what Black Lives Matter means. And so we're having those conversations in our Jewish community. And then on the other side, in our spaces with our other Black members of community, we are defending Israel and defending the need for Jews to have a, a homeland and saying, not all Jews feel that black lives don't matter. So it's a very difficult time. And we're trying to balance the opportunity that we have to educate both members of our, all the members within our community and with our own emotional and mental health. Yeah. So, um, First of all, let me just thank you for, for that. And, and once again, really thank you for being here and, and taking part in this conversation because um, I, I know it's not easy. Um, and talking about these issues um, you know, can, you know, can, can uh, pick at wounds that uh, haven't healed and, and, and resurfaced trauma. And so you're giving us um, a really great gift here by, by sharing uh, from your experience and, and your wisdom uh, and your insight with us. And, and we really, really appreciate it. Um, and, I, and there's a lot of threads that you, uh, that you wove there. And I, I want to um, try to pull out a few if I can. So that, um, the, the recent wave of protests began with footage of George Floyd's death um, at the hands of police officers. Um, which uh, uh, the video surfaced after Memorial Day weekend. Um, I'm wondering, did you watch the video? And if so, how did it make you feel? I did watch it. And um, I, I cried about it. Um, and I watched it after I watched the Ahmad Aubrey video as well. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, I, I almost just kind of took it all in at once. And I was not shocked. Uh, it's something I really want to I, I want to say, and I say over. I I was not shocked that it happened. I was pained that it happened. I was saddened that it happened. I was frightened that it that it happened. Um, and I thought about you know 
and of course, I, I, I felt for that family. I felt for that community. I felt for my overall larger community and braced myself for the conversations that I would have with people outside of the Black community. Because as these incidents happen, there are the same kind of arguments or debates come up. Police, police brutality, what does that mean? And how do you navigate a conversation about what is police brutality when you're often met before the conversation starts with your anti-police? So those were all of the emotions that were that came to the surface for me after that that first viewing. And and I hugged my husband very tightly was my second very visceral reaction. You know, we're all kind of stuck in the house and we live in short pump. We are the only black family in my neighborhood. And he goes out for runs. And so I just I cried and I hugged him. Right. You know, I um, uh, before George, George Floyd's killing, um, uh, but after Ahmaud Arbery's, I was out for a run myself in my neighborhood um, in, in which there uh, are, I think, to my knowledge, at least my immediate uh, neighborhood, um, no uh, people of color, no families of color. Uh, and, uh, and I was out for a run and I got home and there was a package on my doorstep. Uh, uh, but I always go in through the back door, not the front door. The package is on my front door, which was locked. I didn't have my key with me. So I went and picked up the package and then was going to carry it over to my side door. But someone um, was also on a walk near me and stopped me and said, you know, is that your package? Um, and I said, yes, this is my house, this is my package, whatever. And I'm not sure she like totally believed me, but whatever she did. And she moved on with her day. And, and I... And I walked away from that encounter with a with the sinking suspicion that it, were my skin a different color, that interaction would have been much, much different. And so I'm wondering, um, have you or has anyone in your family ever had an interaction with the police that you believe would have been different or wouldn't have happened at all if you were white? Absolutely. Um, again, as a just to pin back to something I said earlier, that these these incidents or any incident that happens in my own life um, brings back that memory of however young you are when you can first remember that first racial incident. And it made me think about being at home in, in California where we lived. We're from a very rural town and sitting outside me and my siblings on our dad's car and a police officer driving by and rolling down the window and saying, you kids need to get off these nice people's car. Well, we, we lived there. <laughs> this was our car. This is our house. And explaining that to my father. And I can vividly remember the pain in his face when we went inside and told him that. And him struggling to explain to his little children what that meant. Um, just as I'm struggling to, to tell Carter what that meant, what that means as well. Wow. Yeah, you know, the, um, I, was, I was reflecting on this. Uh, Reverend Jim Wallace, who is a, a Christian pastor who, who uh, does a lot of writing and social justice work, he, he shared the story. And when he was a child, a black friend shared his mother's instruction that if he ever got lost and he saw a police officer approaching, 
uh, he should hide until the officer passes and then ask someone for help. Um, and Wallace was stunned. And I, when I read that, I was stunned too, because uh, his white mother, my white mother, had given him the exact opposite message. If you ever get lost, look for a police officer, someone you know you can trust. Um, and so I, I've learned over time that parents of black children often have, you know, quote unquote, the talk with their children about how to avoid entanglement with the police. Did, did your parents have that talk with you? Have you had it with Carter? Absolutely, we've we've had that talk, and, and in that that very moment, in that incident, you know, when I when we went inside and said, "Dad, you know, they told us to get off your car," he said, "Don't say anything to the police. Go, don't go anywhere near the police." And we're thinking of you know the call nine one one song you learn in preschool, trying to understand what that meant. But that's what he said: don't say anything to them. Don't go anywhere near that. And I've had that talk over my childhood many times. And even in college, I attended undergrad, a historically black college, Hampton University in Hampton Roads. That's what brought me to Virginia. And at freshman orientation, we were all told, don't know where you came from, you guys from the North or from the West, although that's really not true. We experience racism everywhere. You're in Virginia, you're in the South. Don't go here, don't go here, and don't call the police. You use the campus police if you have a problem. You never call 911. Hmm. Um, so here's a bigger question, a more, a more broad question, you know, because we, we started with the tour portion, um, which, uh, which, which, I think in a kind of you know plain reading of it involves Miriam and Aaron um, uh, speaking ill of someone uh, of a different skin color than than them. The idea of race didn't exist in in the Torah. The idea of race, uh, the concept of race, was was really invented uh, in uh, you know as a, as a an outgrowth of um, of uh, racial slavery in uh, um, in in North America, um, but. Um, you know, often when we think about racism, uh, especially when white people think about racism, I think we think about it as like, you know, interpersonal acts of meanness, right? So like, so I say like, you know, I, I would never use the N word. I would never, you know, personally, you know, not hire somebody or, or you know, like uh, discriminate against somebody because of the color of their skin. And so therefore, um, I can't be racist, right? Or I say to myself, there's a, a wonderful book called White Fragility, where she said, you know, the calculation for a lot of people is that, you know, racism is bad. I'm a good person. Therefore, I can't possibly be racist. Um, but how would you define racism? And how do you distinguish between institutional versus interpersonal racism? Right. Um, uh, how do I define it is, is exactly as, as you sort of laid out the institutional or the systemic and the interpersonal. And while those are different terms, it's very important to understand that those two terms and those actions are mutually reinforcing. It is mutual, very much mutually reinforcing that if areas are over-policed, there are more arrests in communities of color and especially in black communities. And then someone personally drives through those communities and feels that they need to roll up their windows and lock their doors, and they may not have had to do that in, in other communities. 
I would also say, and I've had a lot of very authentic, candid conversations about this lately, that it's, it's really important to understand that you don't have to use a derogatory term to, to be racist, to commit a, a, an act of, of racism. It doesn't have to be police brutality. These what people call microaggressions, the little things that people don't realize they say to someone is also very traumatic. It's, it's also very hurtful. It is very hurtful to say, wow, you, good, good job, you, you spoke so well. Well, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an educated 40-year-old woman. I would think that I should be able to, to speak very well. I do this for a living. I, I don't think that that should be surprising, but I hear that all the time. It's, it is an act of racism when you are at your shul, and I'll, I'll pin it back to it, to put it in a, in a Jewish perspective, and you're asked if you're lost or given instruction of where to go and where to find things. Is that person a good person? Sure. The only reason that they looked at me and, and assumed I may be lost is because of the color of my skin. And I know I've, I've shared a very personal experience with, with Rabbi about this last Pesach in Westbury Pharmacy, walking over to the kosher section to get some items for, for, for Passover and being asked by a customer, was I lost? and telling me where the items really were. I knew exactly where I was going. I mean, if you've been in Westbury, you gotta kind of go around a whole bend, like you gotta know where you're going to go there. But that, that person probably in their mind thought, I'm just being helpful because clearly this person shouldn't be in this area. So um, also understanding racism, understanding the statistics that people espouse without asking the why behind those statistics. Well, 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 you know, it's not racist for me to say that black families are broken and where are black fathers without thinking about the why. Well, many think about the men that are in jail, think about the systemic racist policy of welfare laws changing so that men could not be in the homes. If men weren't given the same economic opportunities, their families would starve. So they had to make the choice to leave the homes so that they could get food stamps and other benefits. I could go on for right. I mean, it, right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it goes, you know, the, uh, it, it goes back very deep uh, because, uh, you know, in the, in the history of enslavement uh, in, in North America, um, black families were routinely broken up by, uh, by uh, white people uh, looking to make a profit off of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so the, the brokenness of family structures um, is sort of, you know, baked into the cake. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's, there's real culpability there uh, for uh, some of our, um, uh, not, not uh, and not to mention, you know, uh, again, I, I really hope everybody here uh, reads the book White Fragility. Um, but, uh, but, but the author points out in there that, you know, some of the language that we use um, and the, the kind of concepts we have. And, and by the way, you know, this, this is actually not 
uh, unique to uh, white or white presenting people, sometimes this infects uh, people of color too, that, yeah. that we are kind of conditioned um, to think of black neighborhoods as bad neighborhoods, black, you know, predominantly black schools as, as bad schools, predominantly white neighborhoods as good neighborhoods, predominantly white schools as, as good schools. Um, and, and again, without thinking about, you know, the, the, you, the ways in which, you know, there may be black neighborhoods that are bad neighborhoods, but why is it that there are black neighborhoods in the first place? Um, and, uh, and, and why is it that there is um, a, a lack of uh, economic progress in, in some of those uh, places in some of those areas, right? So it's, it's this kind of mutually reinforcing system by which, you know, we, um, we create the conditions uh, for, uh, for segregation and uh, poverty, um, and then we reinforce uh, the, the, the narratives and the systems that ensure that things stay that way for uh, people who live in, in those areas and go to the schools. Absolutely. Um, and just to, to, to piggyback on something you said, it does go back deep, but not as back, far back as you think. Right, right. Um, my grandmother's grandmother was a slave. That is not far off. There are people who are living right now who knew slaves. So again, I'm not racist, but that happened a long time ago. Not really. Right, right. right. Right, you know, so I, I uh, there was a um, a meme that a friend of mine from uh, from from high school uh, pointed out. I grew up in Georgia, and it was you know obviously in jest, but there was a lot of truth to it, which is you know the the way I think a lot of us learn history, a lot of us white people learn history, or who went to predominantly white schools, especially learn history. But it probably was true also in in schools that were predominantly black. Is that you know uh, um, you know in the in in the twenty first or twenty late. 20th and 21st century, right? You learn, you know, uh, there was there was slavery uh, for a lot of American history, but Lincoln fixed that, um, and then uh, and then everything was fine um, until uh, until you know so, until the Ku Klux Klan decided to uh, uh, be mean to black people again, and that was bad. Uh, but then Martin Luther King came and fixed that, um, and uh, and and now the fact that there's uh, you know racial inequality is really just black people's fault. That's sort of the, the narrative, or the, there may have been in there like, you know, Malcolm X was there too, but he was mean and thankfully Martin Luther King was nice. And the last racist person killed him, uh, but then he went to jail and we were all fine after that. That sums it. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's about right. And, and that's, that's it. I mean, that's, I, I unlearned a lot um, reading on my own as, as well. The things that you learn in, in the history books, we, we all know that, are not always the true depiction um, of what we see and, and or what our experiences are. And things happen like that all the time today to, to people of color and to black people. Right. So you, you mentioned, you know, some of the experiences that you have within the Jewish community. Um, and, and so I wonder if we can uh, uh, talk about that a little bit more. Um, uh, you know, to share if you had, you know, other, other experiences, other encounters that, uh, that, that you feel like we may not have, uh, uh, we may not think about, right? Whether you or uh, things that you've heard from other Jews of color. Um, and, and what would you, really, what would you like um, those of us uh, in the Jewish community who are, who, are, who are white or white presenting, what would you like us to know? Um, and how can our community be a more comfortable and equitable space for, for people of color? Absolutely. Uh, I'll start with your first part, just with any 
experiences of, of um, Jews of color, Black Jews. We talk about this in our communal and social media spaces all the time. I will give a concrete example. Um, in the last year, um, when there was this sort of rash of anti-Semitic attacks and we as a Jewish community in many shuls employed police officers or security guards to protect our shuls. Well, that's obviously, I, I want to be protected against anti-Semitic attacks, but my other first reaction was, okay, there's gonna be a police officer standing at the door that I'm gonna to have to navigate to go in. And I found myself doing this at our school, letting the police officer know seen me come in and drop off Carter, but know that my husband is going to be coming to pick her up. And many of us experienced that, those conversations, how do we feel about trying to feel safe from anti, an anti-Semitic attack, but also knowing we do not feel safe when a police officer is present. We don't feel safe when we walk into a, a communal, a something, an event that's happening at Shul and are asked directly, when did you convert? Uh, many of you I, I know very well and you, you know my story and, and I'm a proud, I proudly went through the, the conversion process, but I, my fellow converts do not have that experience that are not of color. And certainly people don't feel comfortable just going right up to them and asking that as, as soon as they walk in the door. Who are you here to see? What do you know what's what? You know, I've 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 mentioned that um before and I'll give you an experience um with Carter's preschool and then move on to you know where I think we can go next. When we went for our tour of Carter's preschool, and I had had many conversations on the phone, many conversations, we were ready to go. I was there to bring my check for the year, and everything was go, everything was fine. And as soon as I walked in the door and said my name, because they were confused, I'm sorry, can I help you? I'm here to meet with the director of the preschool for what was the next question well i'm here to drop off my check my daughter will be starting preschool in a month um woman went in the back and there was a lot of conversation i was left waiting for a whole 15 20 minutes and as soon as i was actually brought back the first question i was asked not welcome glad to see you glad that you um we finally got to meet face to face it was i just need to ask you a question are you Jewish? No one else, many other women who were not Jewish, um, who brought their kids and had that same, you know, drop off your check, were asked that question. So I, I, I leave that with, with the community to think about that, to think about the language that you use, the questions that you ask. Um, when a Jew of color is, is, is in our in our Jewish in our Jewish spaces, what would I like the congregation to know? How would I like things to change? I would really like more, on one hand, more academic discipline. When we think we know something, 
take a moment to ask, do the toddler thing, but why, but why, but why, but why? And I think that you will uncover some, some, very, some things that you hadn't thought about, mostly because you hadn't had to think about it. I think that's one thing to start, unpack a lot of things that you think you know. Um, treat us not as a monolith. That means Black Jews. That means Black people in general. We have many shared experiences, but we're very different. You know, we, we come from different places. We have different families. We have different cultures. We have different traditions. That's very important also. Understand that when we say and when we express our experiences of white privilege and, and racism, it is not a personal attack against you, the person I am looking at and talking to, that it is a collective system and and just live with that like I feel you know I, I find it really frustrating when I say that and a white person says well I've never been mean to you and I feel very offended that you said that to me well I, I, I feel very offended all the time in my life in my own skin there's nothing I can do about how I look um, I understand that many Jews are categorize themselves as not white and are white passing and that you and own that you benefit from that privilege. I can't pass for anything other than exactly what you see. Um, you know, you, um, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the concept of, of uh, white privilege um, uh, because it's something that I think that uh, a, a lot of us uh, wrestle with um, and, you know, and especially, you know, what you, what you named there that, um, you know, I think that, that especially we in the Jewish community um, uh, who present as white, um, you know, we, we have the historical experience of anti-Semitism. Some of us have the personal experience of anti-Semitism uh, and, and, and have, the, uh, uh, have, the, have the memory and have the experience of being part of a marginalized community, but don't also realize the ways in which we uh, may have benefited uh, from uh, the privilege of our skin color, um, and 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 um, and and feel defensive about that. And so um, there's there's this exercise that uh, that I that I thought would be interesting for us to do. Um, if uh, if if folks are willing, you can kind of see each other on the screen. I want to invite everybody to hold up your ten fingers uh, and uh, put down a finger um, as I read. Uh, these uh, these items. Put down a finger if uh, if any of them uh, apply to you. Put a finger down if put a finger down if you've been followed in a store unnecessarily. Put a finger down if someone has crossed the street to avoid passing you. Put a finger down if you've had someone clinch their purse in an elevator with you. Put a finger down if someone has stepped off an elevator to avoid riding with you. Put a finger down if you've been accused of not being able to afford something expensive. 
put a finger down if you've had fear in your heart while being stopped by the police. Put a finger down if you've been asked by your community, when did you convert? Put a finger down if you've never been given a pass on a citation that you deserve. Put a finger down if you've ever been stopped or detained by the police for no valid reason. Put a finger down if you've been bullied solely because of your race. Put a finger down if you've ever been denied service because of the color of your skin. Put a finger down if you've ever had to teach your child how not to get killed by the police. So look around at, at uh, the rest of the group here um, and see how many fingers that people are holding up. Um, it's, it's pretty striking. Um, I see some people with, with a handful of fingers down. Um, Except for except for one of us, um, and I've run out of fingers. Yeah. So what would you what what would you say about that exercise, Serena? Like what you noticed in in around the room? I think it was a very tactile way for people to understand what systematic racism is and what white privilege is, because those terms can can be convoluted can be confusing and i think when you you give really specific examples that and you see that i mean it's it's a visual it it i hope it illuminates what we're talking about what we're protesting about what has traumatized us as a people and why we are we need our, our communities to, to understand that and to appreciate that and to work with us to help us overcome that. Are you uh, willing to take one or two questions from the congregation? Sure. Okay. Does anybody have a, a question uh, that they'd like to add or a voice they'd like to add into the conversation? Well, okay, uh, then, then Trina, maybe I'll ask you one last question and then you can uh, add in anything that, we, that maybe we haven't covered. But um, we asked, I asked you what, what you'd like the Jewish community to know and, and, and how um, we in the um, uh, uh, you know, uh, white presenting uh, segment of the Jewish community, which is the majority of, of our Jewish community, what we can do to make our, our uh, community a more comfortable and equitable space for people of color, but more broadly speaking, what would you want white people or white presenting people to know about what it's like to be black in America? Um, and what can white people do to be better allies, language actions? I, I would echo some of the same, same tenets, you know, is to be thoughtful about um, the microaggressions, again, I have a love-hate relationship with that term. I understand its utility, 
but it, of course it doesn't feel like a microaggression to that person when it happens to them. Language is, is important. Um, even when you're trying to be helpful, just taking a second and being thoughtful about your language. We're, we're not all immigrants. Um, my, if you are a, a black person with a history of slavery in your family, not an immigrant, we were stolen. We were hostages, hostages, not immigrants. It's a very different trajectory to our and experience in this country. So understanding language, um, understanding that um, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater argument, understanding not to um, white fragility you talked about, white explaining our experiences. If you don't know or don't understand, you can ask and, and there's, a, there's a way to ask, there's a way to understand. Understand that no one is asking our cries for equity, not equality, because we can both go to the same schools and live in the same neighborhoods, but we still can't optimize the same opportunities, um, are not to have more or to take away from anyone else. We just don't want to be kept from having the same opportunities. There's a very important difference there. Um, understanding that you know we we want our children in our neighborhoods to have the same life and love and community that everyone else does um, understand again that we're not all a monolith and that people of color and black people have different economic experiences different religious experiences and to see us in, in that light, see us as individuals, but also see our collective pain and struggle as well. And continue to, to have conversations, continue to challenge yourself to seek out new experiences. Do something as, as simple as go take a yoga class in a different part of town. Go try a different restaurant. And um, you'll, you'll see that that I think creates more meaningful connection. Um, the posts are lovely and I appreciate when I see on social media kind posts, but I really wanna see um, action. I really want to see action in terms of education, in terms of economics, in terms of healthcare, in terms of safety um, on a broader national and global scale. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you sharing uh, that with us. And I, I, I'm mindful of, you know, a, a reality here that, um, that, you know, this is, this is not a, a, a problem that is yours to solve, um, that, uh, that you uh, don't really have an, uh, an obligation or a responsibility um, to, uh, to, to teach us uh, how to do our work and how to do our job. Um, in the same way that, you know, I think we Jews can identify with that um, it's not the Jewish people's job to fix the problem of anti-Semitism. Um, it's the non-Jewish world's job to fix the problem of anti-Semitism. Um, so it's not the black community's uh, job to uh, fix the problem of racism. It's, uh, it's, it's the rest of us um, who, uh, who, who really 
bear the responsibility for this. Um, and uh, some of you know that I, that I just published a, a piece about this, about where the, you know, um, the Jewish community, I think, uh, should be involved in, in this work. And I think that, uh, you know, we um, uh, have uh, the ability to be a really strong partner and ally for communities of color if we're willing to do the work. Um, and we're in a unique position to um, uh, help advance the cause of racial justice if we're willing to muster our, our power and privilege to that end. Um, and we have the ability and the responsibility to, to uh, help each other um, and to help our larger Jewish community grapple with our role in perpetuating um, and tolerating uh, systemic racism. Um, and so uh, I'm really grateful that you have uh, come to share of your experience um, and to teach us uh, and to help us do this work that both internally and externally, um, we have uh, a, uh, uh, um, an obligation um, to be a part of, those of us uh, in uh, the, the Jewish community, uh, especially who are um, white presenting. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful for your presence and for your, for your insight and for your spirit uh, and your partnership. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. We, we love our, our TBE family and um, appreciate the support. I appreciate the many um, authentic, truly loving personal outreaches that I've received from, from um, members of the community. And um, yes, I, I look forward to, to keep fighting the good fight with everyone. Thank you. Well, we, lo we love you too, and we love Mitch Film, we love Carter. Um, we love your whole family, and we're so blessed to have you as part of our community. Um, and so I'll conclude uh, this portion of our Torah service with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah emet chaye olam natabetochenu Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. This has been socially distant, spiritually close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.